Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Here we, here we, here we go. A little late, but we're here. We go. Turn the music down, Kyle. It's too loud. It's too. It's far too early for such, such loud introduction music. Such hippie <clears throat> sitar music. Come on. Yeah, just start hit the it button again. twice like a <laughs> schlemiel. Oh, <clears throat> it's one of those mornings. It is one of those mornings. So, uh, okay. So the closet over here. Yeah. It's not really a closet, you know that. It's got uh, the sump pump in it and it's all a that. Closet. It's kind of a closet. It just like hides the industrial. Uh, yeah. The, the inner workings. The, yeah, all of the cogs and wheels. And um, there was uh, a time when both pumps in there were burnt out. And so we were having issues where water was coming up out of the pump and it was flooding, a little bit flooding the podcast studio. And it was, uh, you know, it was awful. It was terrible. But I ended up calling a guy and he fixed it. Post haste, he was, it was awesome. Um, and uh, I tell you that because I had a bag of things, trinkets, mm. that was in there. And I don't know why I put them in there. Because <clears throat> it's a closet. Yeah, I don't really have, a, <laughs> have like a lot of room for shit. <laughs> but it's like I don't have... I don't have any place to display all the things that I once had when I, before I was married, you know, when I was allowed to have things of my own yeah. uh, around. And then get some more shelves in here, dude. I know, man. Eventually, that transitioned into an office at work, so I had my things at my office at work. Oh, man. I had this fucking... I had this cork board, you know? Yeah. And I brought it in so that I could hang things because I wanted to have stuff in my office. This is way back in Columbus, back home. And... Uh, I had those Chinese, those brass Chinese letters that you gave me from, yeah, from childhood. Yeah. Oh, man. I had those hanging in my office on a cork board. Yeah. And a whole bunch of other things, like my framed degree and stuff like that, hanging from a cork board. It was just precarious as hell. And on many occasions, it would just fall. And just the loudest <laughs> clamoring noise in the whole office, just the big brass That's Chinese hilarious. letters and glass breaking and stuff. Just <clears> distracting <throat> everyone. Yeah. I tell you that because... Uh, I had trinkets and things in a bag that used used to be my things, and that some of those things were important to me, and uh, they they were at threat of getting soaked. And so, somebody very kindly took the bag out of the closet, and then very imprudently threw it uh, over there someplace. And the glass that was in there oh, broke, and they were things that I would, would rather have not had broken. So if you can see. That jar up there, a very old jar. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just a marmalade jar. It belonged to my great-grandparents, and I don't know how old it was, but something tells me they kept it, like they had like coins in it or something. It was like kept as a storage container. Yep. But it's got to be, it's got to be a hundred years old, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's really cool. And it was in perfect pristine condition for all these years. And it got shattered. 
You got, it doesn't look shattered. That's because I super glued it all back together. Yeah. And uh, here's the thing about super gluing something back together. I made this mistake twice, and now I'll never make it again because I realized my mistake. If you're going to do that, it's important you find the little pieces. Yeah. It's important. It's very important. Why? Because you're going to want to put those big pieces together. They're the easiest ones to fit. You're going to want to put them together. But as soon as you get them glued together, you will never, ever, ever get those little pieces back in. Yeah. You have to start with the little pieces. You got to painstakingly glue those little bitches back together until they're a larger piece. And then you figure out where it fits in the puzzle and you glue it together. Then you put the big pieces in. So anyway, I did glue it back together, but it's there's pieces missing and it's, it's never going to be the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Jarmalade. While I was Come while I, while I was in there, I found that. I found this little thing wrapped around the the monitor. So I'll let you look at this little thing here, Kyle. It looks uh, very Native American. Yeah, it's kind of beat up, but it's basically like a like a, a hemp rope thing it's all braided together and it's got these uh like a, two different kinds of nuts um that have been tied to it like a uh, pieces of ornament and then it, these tropical feathers small tropical feathers are dangling from it so this this was a gift um i had a f- person i worked with <clears throat> i like to call her a friend but i don't we were never friends um she was a nice enough lady but she wasn't really a nice lady shout, shout out to joyce she went to brazil and she brought this back for me because she knew i liked a tribal, you know, yeah. culture and religion. That's really that's so, nice. It's very cool, man. This is one of the, I mean, shout out to Joyce for real because this is a really cool gift. But it was in there. And yeah. I was like, oh, man, this is something that we should probably just, you know, have out. Is I it? found all these cool pictures that you had a chance to look through just a second ago. Did you see anything cool in here? I didn't get through all of them because uh, we were starting. Boy. But, uh, yeah, I saw some cool stuff in there. Some, <laughs> It's funny to me. <laughs> like... You know, people, I guess people take pictures at concerts now, but they do it on their phone. And it, we're so, like, disconnected from that. The thought of you at a concert with a camera is yeah. just really funny to me. That's funny because you're right. There's there's pictures in here at a concert that I must have had a camera on my neck to That's take. That's so weird. There's also pictures of a whole bunch of girls I went to high school with. Uh, Tammy and Cassie, Joe, my buddy Joe, and he was look. He grabbed Ashley's boob in this picture right as the picture was taken. So immediately after this, like a millisecond after this picture was taken, you see her face. Yeah. She doesn't even hasn't registered yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She turns around and just smacks him. That's funny as hell. But a bunch of pictures of uh, Meatball from back in the day, um, big fat me from when I was a big fat kid, not really like a teenager. Um, yeah, I say that, but then there's a picture of me eating like a giant pancake breakfast with stuff on my face. Yeah. Anyway, oh, there's me and me and my wife from way back in the day. Ooh, look at that big fat picture of me. Yeah, man, you definitely used to be a chunker. Oh, there's you and me sleeping in bed when we were wow, teenagers. Both fat. There's a samurai sword. Oh, there's those there's those Chinese letters on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I realize the audience can't see these pictures, but uh, point is, I just busted out these pictures. Uh, they go way back to like high school. Oh, there's you, Kyle, with a Halloween costume on. <laughs> um, Freddy Krueger mask, yeah. Afro wig. Oh, I also have an older picture. Oh yeah, that's old as hell. That's Pic- picture of uh, you're like 13. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Not a yeah. Not even a not a pube on the face. Not a pube on the face. All right. So enough of that because the audience can't see these pictures. But I also when I was I was uh, looking around for meaningful objects, you know, like. Like, well, these shoes that you see on the table here. I do see some furry shoes. So these are very strange. How would you describe these uh, little boot- booties that are on the table, Kyle? I would describe them as uh, maybe 
moccasins. Yeah, they're kind of like moccasins. They're trimmed in Christmas colors. Yeah, yeah. They also are made of animal hide. Yes. Fur. And, and the toes if you will. curl up like Yeah, a, like Aladdin shoes. Like Aladdin shoes or like a... What comes to my mind is like an elf. I imagine yeah. elves have shoes yeah, like Buddy this. Buddy has a pair of those. So those you, are Buddy's winter shoes. Exactly. So you're 100% right. They look like Native American moccasins, except they're, they're, they've got this colorful touch to them that you wouldn't, you yeah. wouldn't expect, you wouldn't think Native from Native Americans. Native Americans didn't celebrate Christmas. They definitely didn't. Maybe, so, maybe one or two. These, these are reindeer skin moccasins from, from Finland, because my wife's family's from there. And these, her dad wore when he was a kid. Yeah. And she, he gave them to her to wear when she was a kid, and she wore them around the house. They're like that well made. They're really effing cool. And like traditional clothes, you know, like that's a, that's a thing lost on Americans is yeah, the, the fact things disposable. Everything. Well, I was going to say the fact that the, the, the notion that like modern people in particular, white people have traditional garb. Like you, oh, like yeah. you might see a tribal person wearing in Africa, or you might imagine like you know Native Americans in the U.S. or Canada or something. Yeah, this is traditional garb, man. Yeah. Nowadays, traditional traditional white people garb is billabong shirts, <laughs> fucking jean shorts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not as good. It's not as good. It's definitely not as good. It's it's weird, man. Because like I imagine. Some of those countries over there, like uh, Finland and Sweden and Norway and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If you look at their traditional clothes, and by that I mean the kind of shit you might see, like German people wearing at, at Oktoberfest, yeah, that kind of thing. Later hosen and Dirndl. Yeah, but like the northern versions of that, and those those women and and the men, like the trousers and the fucking all that weird stuff. Um, it's like they're similar, but different colors and different patterns. Like the way Scottish people have different. Different styles of plaid, the tar- tartan, right? Yeah, um, and it's like the Crips and the Bloods. It's like this. It's like, like the same, the same outfit, but yours is blue and mine is red. Yep. I want. I mean, I wonder. Did I guess gangs like? I guess they do. I mean, it's like a violent family, but I guess they do consider themselves like a tribe. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's kind of. You know, the bandanas and stuff, it's not as cool as these slippers. No, no. It doesn't have the same, you know, just cool, cool essence. Listen, I think it's cool. It I think it's cool. very cool. It's like this mysterious part of European culture that I, I know nothing about, and I should, and I feel like it's part of my tradition, right? I should know something about this, but I know nothing about it. It's a mystery. Yeah. But the reason, I, the reason I'm, like, pointing to all these interesting things is because I was thinking about, like, meaningful objects like uh, they get passed down let's say from your parents or your grandparents or whatever like how how few of those things I have and like wanting to pass down something to my kids when I die something meaningful I don't know why that's important I don't mm. know why it seems valuable but it sort of does and I have two girls and I have like one thing that I can think of that's like that and what do I do man I got, I got two kids yeah you know do you have any objects like that um I have a sword, like a military sword, um, that was my grandfather's, um, and I have a ring, like a Sergeant Major's Academy ring, mm. but I only recently got those things. Oh, yeah. Um, and I might have other things. Like, I've got a, a pitchfork, but it's like, 
not really significant in any way. It was just a decoration from their house. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, but still belonged to your grandparents. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, and it's old, right? Probably. Um, it's old, but it's. I don't. I don't think it was ever used as a pitchfork. Just it's as just a decoration. Hang, it's oh, just hanging in my yeah. house now. Did, so. did you hang this order or anything? Are you display in it or not? Really, because I don't really have a know place to what it? to do with mm. it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to hang it or how to display it. Do you? Do you put special value on those objects? Mm, I mean, I do. I'm not going to throw them away. I'm certainly not going to throw them away. So I guess I do. Um, but I also don't like. I, I wish that the objects that I had weren't just like things that like I was like oh I guess I'll take this you yeah. know because they're 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 both dead now and so if I don't take it somebody else is gonna take it or it's just gonna get thrown away so yeah. I guess I'll take it <laughs> oh, um, but yeah no I don't have anything that was like you know like um, that had had a memory associated with it or anything like that which See, sucks that's kind of it does suck but that's kind of what I'm getting at is that. I'm wondering why these objects are meaningful. Why why we think they're special. Why I do. I guess that's what I'm wondering. Mm. And uh, and it makes me wonder. Like I, like for me, it's like look, I have a locket. It's not really a locket. It, it's uh, you, you've seen it. It's like a li- it's like a little Bible shaped box, and inside of it is a rosary. It belonged to my great grandmother, and it's old. The beads on the rosary are all handmade. You can tell they're all different shapes and sizes. It's really cool, man. And especially coming coming from the U.S., where our history is not particularly deep, an object that's a hundred years old or hundred fifty years old is fucking ancient for in in, in our perspective. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's like, dude, my pipes, our plumbing is that old. Are you kidding me? We don't have that, so it's like it's got this deep history attached to it, and it goes back in my family line. So it's like you know, my mother owned it, and her, and you know, her grandmother owned it, and that she goes back to the old country and. The rosary was made in Italy. Maybe, maybe it comes from, maybe you know, came from her time there. I don't know. It's got this history attached to it. These people, especially my great grandmother, because I didn't know her, and she was really important to my mom. So I have this connection between this person that was really important to my mom, who I didn't know, but I love my mom and respect her. And whoever was important to her must have been worth it. So she, she's important to me in some way, and a part of me in some way. So anyway. There's things like that. That's why they seem meaningful to me. That's why they're special, even though it's probably worthless, more or less. And it, but then there are objects like relics, like religious relics, mm-hmm. and it's like they're like a ramped up version of that. They have a deeper history. They're connected to more people, you know. Um, but it, but the, the connection isn't as direct. You know, it's not like my family. It's like a, a shard of the cross of Jesus or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know what is it. What is it that makes objects sacred, you know, or, or special? Is there is that fair to make a connection between an heirloom and a religious like relic? Between like a personal family heirloom, mm-hmm. um, the way I, I mean, the way I think it's special compared to like somebody kissing a box with the knuckle bone of a saint. To me, it's like uh, it's like a dialed up version of the same feeling. And I wonder the fuck that's about, man. I don't know, man. That's interesting. Um, I don't think that it's like... I think it's probably like somehow based on the same thing, you know? So I read this thing one time. I'm going to struggle to remember who it was. One of these early anthropologists who talked about magic as the origin of religion. It's almost like you can explain religion based on superstition. It's like people make connections that aren't real... 
they perceive them to be supernatural and all, all of the beliefs about spirits and gods and supernatural powers and heaven and hell and all that flows from magic. And the story is something like this. You tell me if this isn't persuasive to you. Imagine a Stone Age person and they're hunting. They're walking through the forest and they come up to a creek. And let's say they notice in the creek a shiny stone looks unlike any of the other stones. Mm-hmm. Catches their eye. They walk up, they grab that stone, they pull it out of the creek. And then here comes a deer over the hill. And they pull they, they pull up their bow, they shoot that deer. It's a massive deer. And it just appeared right there. The hunters toils over. They can bring this deer back to the to the tribe. They're gonna have this feast. And the man's holding the stone in his hand and he thinks to himself, I found this strange object. And then the deer came. Now, that's one example. But the, the man goes out the next week. They're out of meat. He brings that stone with him. Here comes a deer over the hill. Amazing. Shoots that deer, brings it back home. Everyone feasts. Everyone's happy. Now he has two examples of this stone connected to the hunt, yeah. a successful hunt. Now he starts to think, this is a good luck charm. The stone has magic in it. The stone is connected to the hunt. The stone is helping me. It's, it's attracting. It's whatever it is. It's got some spirit in it. Something's going on with this weird stone. It doesn't look like the other stones. And look, look, look what it's done to me. They tell that story like a, like a strange coincidences that get tied together in people's minds as, as unexplainable. And that magic is the origin of, of all religious feeling. I think that's completely bullshit. But it's an interesting thought experiment. And it's connected to this idea of objects being important or sacred or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's very compelling either as an explanation for religion in general, but it's definitely interesting. It makes me think of, um, and this is maybe a little less, you know, mystical and magical and interesting, but uh, like the guy who, uh, you know, is on the the high school football team and won't wash his socks until they lose, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like the same thing. Yeah, man, isn't that interesting? So it's like there's something... That's common between what we would call, what we pretty much all agree on is uh, a mental problem like OCD. Attaching meaning to behaviors or patterns or objects that, that isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so close to religious types of practices like, rit- like ritual objects and, and sacred objects and things like that. There's a really close connection between what you just described, like somebody who... <clears throat> you know, a dialed up version of your of your superstitious jock is as an OCD person, don't you think? I guess um, I'm never going to wash these socks because I wear these dirty socks every time we win. Yeah, where the where the OCD guys like if I don't check the stove, the house is going to burn. You're right. Down. I yeah. got to have five apples lined up in the fridge. Yeah. If, if there's four apples, the world is going to fall apart. Yeah, and that you know what? That's that's what it is, man. I read this thing. Fucking, where did I read this thing? I don't remember. But it was talking about um, ancient people doing rituals and how, you know, how, like, they had to do a rain dance because if they didn't, it wouldn't rain. Yeah. Right? They had to do the ritual or the sun wouldn't rise. Right? They The rituals they did... That seems like a pretty easy one to disprove. You know, you just wait. The sun's coming <laughs> up. But they literally thought that they had to take the responsibility of um, 
keeping the world ticking. They had they had to do something to keep that ensure that that happens. Got to wind the watch. So human beings decided at some point that they had a role, a critical role in the uni- the sustainment of the uni- of the order of the universe. Yeah. And that is like OCD, putting five apples in the fridge in a perfect line. You have to do that or the world falls apart. That's how they think. So where's the line between the crazy person and the and the sp- sp- crazy spiritual person, you know? I, I wonder like if there's a you know, some kind of disconnect between, you know, we have to do the sunrise dance or the sun doesn't come up. And uh, also, and like the idea that, you know, we have to go milk the goats or they're not going to produce milk anymore and then we're fucked, you know? That's really interesting. That It's really interesting and it makes me think like before agriculture, before we were milking goats, we never would have thought... Uh, we never would have made the connection. So there's a point in time where human beings become agricultural, where their ideas change because of the way they're living their life. They're living their life in a new way. And so the, even the gods change, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, before before we were farming, the gods were these abstract figures. When we started farming, suddenly the gods are responsible for the crops. Like, okay, well, before there were crops, what were the gods doing? Um, it's interesting, man. It's all tied to our perceived way of life. Yeah. Pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. But I had a, uh, another live stream with Daniel. Uh, we did, uh, the uh, crossover, uh, onion unlimited two tongues live stream. Um, so if you guys are interested, we're, we have two conversations, um, over the last couple of weeks, Daniel and I on the onion unlimited podcast. I'm trying to figure out how to live stream. It's more complicated than it seems. Yeah, he ha- he has a uh, service that he uses uh, yeah. for it that makes it pretty easy, but there's a lot about it. I don't I don't know a lot about it. I don't understand it at this point. <laughs> like, I mean, if I just want to like sit in front of the the webcam and like talk, that's one thing. But if I want to like be able to bring up images or do it like do what you guys do and stream with another person, I have no fucking idea. All that stuff, um, I can I can I can tell you. The service he uses um, incorporates that into the website. So, mm. so you use the, their application it, it, just like you're doing a, a virtual meeting. You can share your screen, so you can you can share uh, if you have two monitors. Let's say you could have whatever images or videos or anything you want to share up there, and you can just toggle back and forth. You can have your picture next to what like this the the uh, yeah. PowerPoint that you're that you're giving or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's all. It's all pretty easy if you wanted to do something like that. I'm going to have to look into that. I know some some services, too. I mean, yeah, I don't know. We, we don't have to talk about this right now, though. Yeah. I want to say Melon is the one he uses. Melon, okay. Yeah, yeah I think that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I encountered that when I was looking, when I was trying yeah. to figure it out. Well, the reason I bring that up is that last conversation we had, we talked about the, the close connection between religious... Um, behaviors mm. and crazy behaviors and how close religious and in, religion and insanity are you know uh, in particular we were talking about like visions right people people who are religious figures have revelations they have visions of god well crazy people have hallucinations and like how how do you determine the difference you know mm. um, is there a difference uh, so that's just interesting man how how closely related Psychopathy, you might say. Is that a word? Yeah. Sounds good. 
it Psy- is. psychopathy and spirituality are behavior wise you know yeah I think uh there's definitely some truth to that and it makes me wonder like all the uh like medications and stuff that we've got going on maybe it's you know I mean I think it's bad in general kind of but um psychological medical like ADD and depression yeah, and all that. yeah yeah and like SSRIs and shit like that and you know just let these crazy people be crazy what's the worst that what's the worst that can happen yeah what's the worst that could happen <laughs> nothing too terrible right um but I don't know like I just uh, think maybe there's something to that you know maybe we're like squashing down some kind of a spiritual aspect and I mean you know I like to get conspiratorial, so I'll go ahead and do it. I think that maybe that's the point, you know? Like, maybe that's the point of uh, the over-medication in, of, of mm. the West. So you bring up conspiratorial, and I, I want to ask you this question. I saw, I was watching this documentary on Netflix called, it's, it's rather new, it's called, like, how, how to Change Your Mind or something like that. But it's all about psychedelic drugs and this guy's researching uh, various kinds and talking about them. It's really actually pretty cool. Uh, where was that? Why would I talk about this? Oh, uh, he, he they bring up in the Mescaline episode Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. and Timothy Leary. Mm-hmm. Two really interesting characters in the... Yeah, I've learned some things about Timothy Leary over the last like few weeks that make me not really like that dude as much. Yeah, I don't like him as much either, but I want to hear about that. But let me let me tell yeah, you yeah. let me so Timothy Leary took one perspective and Aldous Huxley took another. And this is what I want to ask you about. You know how like when the psychedelic revolution happened, people thought, oh, if we could only get more people to have this experience, we could change the world in, in such a positive way. If we could only get lots of people to to have a mystical experience on mushrooms or LSD or whatever, that um People would be kinder. That people would, you know, care for each other. That we'd we'd rescue the planet, and you know, all that sort of hopeful thinking. And Timothy Leary wanted, well, exactly that. He wanted as many people to have a psychedelic experience as possible. He wanted to make it mainstream and accessible. He thought the more people who had it, the better off the, the culture would change, and the better off we would be. And Aldous Huxley had a different take. He said, "That's so effing." dangerous Mm -hmm. to just let as many people as possible take psychedelic drugs Um, because well there's it's not without its risks and you have to be ready for that type of experience so you're just going to be laying this on people it's going to be wasted it's going to be damaging way more than it's going to be helpful why not just give it to the elites Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Coming if, from Huxley, if the New World Order, order all trip balls, then they would become enlightened, and the culture would trickle down to everyone else, and you wouldn't have to risk giving it to all of the unwashed, you know, masses. What do you think? Um, I don't know what I think about that. I think, um, I think that I'm with Aldous Huxley on the point that, you know, just like pushing it out there and like getting as many people to do it as possible. I don't know that I think that's good. And I think I probably would have used to think that was good. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that I do think it's good anymore. Um, because Aldous Huxley is right. You do kind of have to be ready for it. It's not like, like if you dose somebody with acid, you could like fuck them up man. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't think that that's necessarily great. Um, but as far as the elites, I don't know that I believe that, though. I think I 
break away from him on that. Um, like the idea that we're going to get all of the global elites to take mushrooms and that we're going to be better. I just don't, I don't think that, I don't think that psychedelics work like that anymore. Um, I think that maybe they can work like that, but I don't think that like, what am I trying to say? I don't think that it's like a panacea that it's just going to make everything better. I don't think that it's like some miracle drug. Um, I think that like your intentions have a lot to do with it. And I think that they can be used by people. I think that they can be abused by the people taking them. I also think that if you like trust a person to be your shaman and that person who is your shaman has like ill intent, that that can be extremely bad for you. Yep. Um, and that's kind of where my dislike for uh, Timothy Leary comes in. Like, he doesn't seem like a good dude. Um, I, we did an episode with him. He's he's like a shady guy, you know? Yeah, like, oh, there's yeah. a lot in there that's shady as hell. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think I, like, gave him a pass because of, like, you know, I was like, psychedelics, bro, you know? <laughs> um, but now, I don't know. I think that he... Well, he's... I, I can't remember if we talked about this in the episode or not, but he was he had very obvious ties to intelligence, uh, you know, the CIA and whatnot. And he's involved in like MK Ultra, um, which is basically brainwashing and one of the tools that they used for this brainwashing is psychedelics. And yeah. he's like a huge part of that. So he's a piece of shit. Like any like good is like I think overshadowed by that because it's not good for the sake of good. It's good for the sake of the fucking CIA agenda. Hmm. And like, you know, I think that there's a chance that, not even a, a chance, I think that this is the case, that uh, Timothy Leary probably didn't really care that much about the CIA agenda, but he's in a bunch of trouble, so he's going to do this stuff hmm. to get out of trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on the, on the personal level, Timothy Leary uh, is certainly questionable. Yeah, um, I want to. I want to challenge you a little bit on the panacea idea. I think psychedelics are more of a panacea. Yeah. Um, I and I, I I I agree that they're not without risks, and I agree that they don't work on everyone. At least not every time, and at least not in the way that is effective. The mystical type of experience, um, but I think it's possible for anyone to have one, and I think that is the most reliable method of having one. I do think that you give somebody potentially undue power uh, or influence over you if you allow them to participate in that situation and they're not trustworthy. Um, and I'm not downplaying health risks in terms of like psychological breaks and things like that that are rare, but that happen, especially if people have pre-existing psychological conditions and all that sort of thing. Um, however, <laughs> however, if there is such a thing as a, you know, as a, New World Order as a, uh, you know, uh, uh, world governments, you know, if there is this cons any truth behind this conspiracy, that there's very wealthy people out there that are collaborating to some degree to organize changes in culture in a way that, you know, they've determined, uh, f you know, f f from fiat or something like that. If that's legit and we know that wealth corrupts people, it's likely that those people are all kinds of fucked up already. Mm. And if they did psychedelics... I think that there's almost no chance that it makes them worse. 
I think there's a significant chance it makes them better. So to that point, I, I, would, I would say I do think that the elites should all trip. And the ones that don't have success the first time should trip more. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Um, I don't. I do not agree. You think, you think it's possible that a megalomaniac could have an ego death and be worse? Um, I don't know. Like the whole ego death thing, um, I don't know that everyone gets to that point, you know? I don't know that that is, um, that is you know, widely reported in people who take psychedelics, but I just don't know that it's like, I don't know, maybe like different personality types are never going to have that, you know what I mean? It's interesting. Um, I don't know that we know enough about the like mechanisms and the science to say, but what I've heard is that there's some sort of a reduction in the default mode network in the brain, reduction in activity in the default mode network in the brain that psychedelics cause. And with enough reduction in that activity, you lose connection to your sense of being a self. Mm. That That is the best physical explanation of what an ego death might be is a certain type of brain activity stops your entire experience changes when that stops uh it's like the filters the filters of your experience stop um i would i would think that with a high enough dose of psychedelics everybody is going to encounter that yeah i don't know it's probably harder for some people but i don't i can't i can't imagine somebody that would be impossible even if that is the case that everyone i'm not 100 percent sure of that um but even if that is the case and somebody has that experience in the trip i mean this shit doesn't stick with people all the time you know and and who's to say that like if they have that experience that they're going to derive the same meaning from it you know um that that part is true see like I, i had this image in my head of like uh, what's what's George Soros? So just imagine George Soros, and I don't know, man. He he's kind of reminds me of like a Monty Burns type figure, um, but but also like a like a um, what's that fucking guy's name? Uh, that fucking um, the the guy did uh, this. Uh, fuck, he's like a um, automatic writing uh, Alistair Crowley. Oh, okay. He's like Monty Burns and Alistair Crowley in an old rich European body. Um, I can imagine that guy doing psychedelics and having a bad trip and maybe doing psychedelics and like I said, keep trying to you until it works and having bad trips, more and more and more bad trips. And what that is, is him forcing himself to confront all of the evil, terrible shit that he's done and thought and, and yearned for. And he's being punished and he's also being transformed. And it's like having those bad trips is purifying him purifying him until he can finally climb up out of this pit and become enlightened and that is possible for everybody you know that's kind of like a the message of christianity by the way um you know everybody can be redeemed no matter how bad of a sinner and that that's repeated psychedelic experience might allow him to do that um what do you think about that maybe i mean i don't know i i'm skeptical that it would work for everyone, you know? I just don't think... I think that some people are maybe beyond, you know? Maybe they're just so fucked up that it's never going to happen. Or maybe it's just like a biology thing. Maybe, uh, you know, they they have some kind of a different reaction to it and it's just never going to happen. So I, I can imagine somebody having the same experience I had that was life-changing for me and not be able to... 
process the meaning at all because mm-hmm. it's so bewildering and alien that they would never it, that it might be quite likely that somebody could have an experience like that and make heads nor tails of it. They're not spiritually changed because they have no effing clue what just happened to them. I can understand that because that goes back to set and setting. It goes back to, you know, the role you play in the outcome of the experience and how unconscious that is and how we don't understand how, you know, that very well. So that to that degree, it, I could see it possible for someone to have a hundred psychedelic experiences and never make heads or tails of it and never take away any meaning from it even if it was exactly the same thing that I I experienced Yeah. so I'll go with you that far but I think it's worthwhile so I I guess what I think is I like Huxley's idea I say give that a shot Give it a shot. Just force all the it's, elites to yeah, take mushrooms. It's, le- it's less dangerous because it's a small. It's a small sample size, right? It's like let's let's take, let's make an experiment here. We'll take a small group of people. Yeah, they're the richest and the most powerful people in the world. But let's get them together. We'll do this experiment. If it works for them, then we'll trickle it down to the rest of us. So, you know? what do you do? I mean, you said earlier that taking psychedelics is not without risk and that it can like break people's minds. You yeah. know. Uh, so what do you do when that happens to the elites and you've got some guy who is dosed out of his mind on LSD and comes out of it, you know, three days later because he had such a, a large dose and he's just like a maniac now. Dude, that is so scary because it because it makes me think because part of me wants to wants to think that if you had a severe psychological break during a LSD trip. That you wouldn't you wouldn't be functional anymore. Like the next day, you would be trembling, like you have the craziest PTSD, and you could you can't even speak. And for thirty years, you're going to be locked up in an institution, drooling on yourself. But that's not that's not the case because you look at the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. That guy had exactly that happen to him. He had psychedelic experience forced on him, um, and that guy was a college professor and was capable. He wasn't drooling on himself. He went out to like wherever he was, like Colorado or something, and built a cabin and lived out there and plotted and, and planned this whole crazy thing and then blew up the World Trade Center. Uh, or the, in Oklahoma City. What, what was it? What was it? The, the Unabomber? Yeah. Didn't do either of those no? things. He sent, ma- he sent mail bombs. Mail to, bombs. Yeah, mail bombs. To, you know, people in universities and airlines but sophisticated, and stuff like that. But that's a sophisticated yeah, yeah. plan oh, he thing. He was for sure a smart guy. So imagine that type of situation. But with a multi, multi, multi billionaire. Yeah, yeah. What kind of damage could you do if you decided that technology was destroying the world and you were George Soros? It's like Lex Luthor. Holy shit. That's like Lex, Lex Luthor. I think you're right. I think I may have spoken too soon. The risks are too great. We can't, we can't have Lex Luthor <laughs> I mean, out there. I think that if, you know, like Elon Musk wants to take mushrooms, uh, then he should take mushrooms, you know? But like this idea that we're going to get them all in a room and make them take an ayahuasca <laughs> trip. Um, I don't know how well that's going to work out. How about this? How about we just pick the most powerful one, who is at the top, and we'll do it to him. Problem is, I don't think we know who that is. <sighs> if you had to guess, Tom Cruise? Tom, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Tom Cruise is definitely it. Do you think Tom Cruise has done psychedelics? I lean towards no, honestly. Yeah. I lean towards no. I think he totally, totally should, man. Yeah. Can you imagine if Tom Cruise did psychedelics and then just became the biggest anti-Scientologist advocate I'll in the world? I'll tell you this. I I lean towards no, but I also would not be surprised if I was wrong. Do you? Yeah. I just wonder, like, I don't think I could have had an experience like I had and believe what L. Ron Hubbard says after that. Yeah, I see. That's another, like, area where... 
I think you and I are maybe starting to diverge on the psychedelics. I don't think that everyone's going to interpret things the exact same way. You know, I think Mm. that a lot of people could be shown literally the exact same thing that you did. And they would just interpret it completely differently. I agree with you. It's one of the things that upsets me the most about people that talk about psychedelic experience is when they talk about being encounters. Mm. I say upsetting, but it's because I think it's the most misinterpreted experience. And it's cocky of me to say that because I'm saying like, look, I wasn't in your mind when you were having this experience. But here's, but what, I, happened. here's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had, I've had being encounters. And... People say, I went to another dimension and I saw interdimensional beings. I saw aliens on, on you know, a di- in a different galaxy. Clockwork I was transported. Elves. Yeah, clockwork machine at, were elves. All that sort of thing. Snake, goddess, women. Um, listen, man. <laughs> listen, man. I think that those experiences are experiences of yourself. They're, they're like dream experiences, but they're per- very, very personal experiences. They're more personal maybe than a dream experience. Mm, that's wrong. They're interpersonal. Yeah. They're, they're interpersonal for sure. Um, but the experience, this experience of beings, I think, is a reflection of yourself in every single case. If you see a, if you see a crazy snake goddess, that's yourself. If you see machine elves that are that are coming after you and throwing lava at you and they're trying to destroy you, that's you. Um, if you think you're transported to another dimension and you're seeing things that you can't understand, also you. And if you can understand that, then I think you can, you can extract meaning from those experiences. I don't know what that meaning is, but it's, but it's meaningful. It's important to you personally. I think that's possible. But it's also possible for a lot of people to not be able to, to merge themselves with this crazy alien experience they're having because it's nothing like you nothing like you've ever experienced it's so different from you they're like this can't be me it never even occurs to them it could be me so they encountered aliens they encountered extra dimensional creatures um i think that because we don't have a tradition surrounding psychedelic experience like shamans did in the stone age you know Mm-hmm. generations and generations of people who had these experiences, talked about them, had a deep understanding of what they were, what they meant, how they could be used. Nobody, we don't have a guide, so we don't have a map. So people go into this experience and it's like, what the fuck? And I can't blame them for that. Um, but I do think that there's some truth in that, that some people, and but maybe if they had a guide, everybody could get there. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't. I think that there are some people who are just not going to. Um, I don't think. You think those are the stubborn people? Maybe. I think there's probably a whole bunch of reasons. Because the gullible people, I feel like we could just tell them whatever we want to tell them. And well, they that's believe it. that's a problem. It is. Too. A pro- it is a problem. Yeah. You know, like you. That's uh. You know, like the MK Ultra mind control stuff. It's like I dose you with a fucking huge dose of mushrooms, acid, whatever, and then I like convince you of something that's complete bullshit, and it's just um to my benefit you know Mm. um so yeah like uh just so everyone knows what the word panacea means it means like a cure-all yeah snake oil exactly um so i just don't think that they're a panacea i don't think that they're a cure-all i think that uh maybe they're good for some people um but like this idea that we just need to get out, you know, Joe Rogan sa- says this shit all the time that we just need to get Trump to take mushrooms or whoever to take mushrooms and then they'll be good. I don't know, man. I just don't know that I believe that. 
I think that it should be an option, that it should be a, an available experience sure, for, for adults. That. And, uh, you know, as long as we can agree with that, I think that we're good. But let me tell you this, that same Mescaline documentary that I was telling you about, they were, t- they were showing these tribes um, in the southeast of the United States who um, traditionally have eaten peyote, you know, because that's mescaline, right? Uh, they, they have rituals, sacred rituals, you know, uh, where they eat the peyote, and they do it respectfully in religious context and all that sort of stuff. And they're still allowed to do that, even though it's illegal. Um, they showed a kid, and he was like 13, I would say. And he he was wearing a FUBU jersey, and he, hmm. and he otherwise he looked like uh, he looked like you know a sitting bull. You know he was like this just youthful Native American, long, straight, dark hair. He was, it looked like like a caricature of an, of an Indian, you know, of an of but a, wearing a native, a FUBU jersey. but wearing a FUBU jersey. Yeah. He had some acne on his face. I could tell he was like a teenager, teenager, you know. And uh, he was talking about going through the peyote ritual. As like I don't know if it was like a rite of passage, but given his age, it's something like that. He had it at that age, like thirteen. He had a psychedelic trip in a religious ceremony at thirteen, and he was talking about how it like helped him with his depression. So we all know teenagers have a big problem with that. You know, there's all kinds of hard things that you have to learn as a teenager, and hard realities that you have to deal with, and it's hard to cope. And lots of teenagers have difficulty coping, and that's always been the case. Always been the case. But this guy takes the psychedelic experience right along with his parents and family and tribe in a way that they've done safely and whatever for, for thousands of years. And he talked about it as being hugely beneficial to his sanity. And also he said that specifically that it wasn't something that was recreational and it, it, he didn't even look at it as a drug you know, like more like a sacrament kind of thing. Uh, what do you think of that? You know, like children being exposed to psychedelics. Um, well, you have kids. How do you feel about it? Man, I feel like, man, I want to say like if I was one of those people as a teenager that was really suffering from depression or that I would not rule out that therapy for my child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it wouldn't be my first idea. Like, I think I think you need a certain amount of life experience before it makes any sense, before it can make any sense. But I also think that getting a peek at the experience, just knowing that it's possible, might be enough to, like, open your mind and change your thoughts and behaviors and desires, especially as a teenager. Like, if I had a... One night where I was on, where I blasted off into space and saw the ancestors. Isn't that funny? That kid, he didn't see, when he tripped on peyote, he didn't see aliens or machine elves or otherworldly creatures. He saw his ancestors. So, so that's culturally conditioned, you know, sure. what you're seeing. Uh, but So he saw his ancestors. Uh, the idea that you would, would have an experience and realize it's possible to have an encounter with your ancestors. There's more to the world. There's this deep spiritual reality behind the scenes that's invisible. And even though I don't understand it, I saw it once. That'd be enough to change your entire life. It would be enough to change what you thought was worth pursuing. You know what I mean? Relationships, occupation, how you spend your time, whether it's worthwhile to to, to do recreational drugs and waste your life. And You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm 
but you know what? I'm more of an optimist than you. So, sure. <laughs> um, I also think that a lot of the stuff that people can gain from psychedelics, um, I think that you can gain in other ways. And I think that our society is designed to where it's harder to get those things from everyday life. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, what sort of examples do you think you could you could have experiences, spiritual experiences in your daily life um, to the level of a mystical experience? What do you think? Like, cause well, I, in terms of like being depressed and things like that, I think that, um, you know, I know that psychedelics have, you know, they're rumored to have, you know, effects on things like that. Uh, and I believe that they probably do. Um, but... I think that also, you know, like I said, our society is not set up in a way to where people are like mentally healthy at the moment, you know. Um, and I think that if we took care of that, then you wouldn't necessarily need the psychedelics to be uh, mentally healthy, you know. True. So imagine a world where, imagine a world where we live more like our ancestors in a more natural way. We got plenty of sun. Mm -hmm. Got plenty of exercise. We ate way better. Um, we, we weren't sitting in front of screens. You and saw indoors. the benefits of the work that you were doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Imagine that. Imagine we had a really healthy, um, emotional and physically healthy scenario and we were all existing in this way. Let's say depression and anxiety fell to near zero levels. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's likely, you know, I th seems pretty likely to me. Let's say that happens. And maybe even like cancer and heart disease and diabetes and all that stuff. Just just tanks. That all sounds great. But a psychedelic experience is still an option. Is it valuable in that situation? You don't you don't need it for fighting depression because you're healthy and your brain works great and you're not really dealing with those issues. But it's still possible to have a psychedelic experience. Is there value in doing it? What is the value? Well, I, well what I just said earlier. Mystical. To get a to get a sneak peek. At a reality beyond what you think is possible. Yeah. To realize that you're wrong about knowing everything. So if that is the value, is there no other way to do that? Not like that, that I've ever experienced. Okay. Uh, I, do, I do think there are people who claim to have, and I'm not writing it off, people that claim to have gotten there through meditation, mm -hmm. through yoga, through sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, deprivation of food, um, you know, ecstatic ritual, I'm sure that it's possible to work yourself into a frenzy and to have altered states of consciousness without taking psychedelic experience or psychedelic substances and trying to have one of those experiences. Um, and uh, I've said, I think I've said this quote before, but Einstein was asked about psychedelics in the 50s. and He said, or maybe it was Carl Jung. Maybe it was Carl Jung. It was Carl Jung. He said that you shouldn't trust you shouldn't trust any profound experience that comes too easily. Yeah. I agree with that. That's kind of where I'm going. Mm. So that uh, if you have, I mean, I'm not like anti-psychedelics, you know, but I do think that you should be aware of unearned wisdom, you know, mm. taking a pill and, you know, getting these insights. I think that if you can do something to earn it, that that is probably better for you in the long run. So I... <clears throat> I wonder, like, I want to, I want to, I want to push back on you, but th then I'm like, try. This is what I like so much about you, man, is that you make me think second, 
guess myself. And it's so fucking important to second guess yourself. Yeah. You know, it's not always valuable if you have to act, but if you're just thinking, it's fucking a good idea to, to look at things from all perspectives. And you bring a perspective to me that I hadn't considered. And it goes something like this. Maybe I earned the mystical experience before I ever took the drug. I, I hadn't had it, but I earned it. And I'll tell you what I mean. And you know this already, but for the audience's sake, I've had a fascination. I've had a love, a love affair with the idea of God for a very long time since I was a kid. And I've read all these books about different religious traditions and explored all that stuff. Whatever fascinated me deep into Hinduism and Native American religion and, you know, ancient Persian religion and on and on and on. And I spent years and years and years searching for something without really realizing it. I didn't know what, that I was searching because to me it was fun. It was like every, all this stuff was interesting and mysteries that I wanted to know the answers to. And I didn't realize I was looking for something, but I was. Then I had a mystic experience. And it was like, that's what I've been looking for this whole time. Now, all of that, all of that set and setting, that was programmed in for two decades before I had a mystic experience. It's like I spent 20 years earning it. Somebody who didn't do that, who just, who just smokes DMT, how are you going to experience, how are you going to assign the meaning to what you just experienced that I did? How? You didn't read the books. You didn't have the questions. You hadn't been searching for it. You know, you, you, you know what I mean? Sure. So maybe you're right. Maybe I earned it the hard way and didn't realize it. Yeah, um, I think that there is probably some truth to that. But I also think that maybe imagine that you had found a way to have that experience without the psychedelics and it was through some kind of practice, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. I, I've never I've never done it. But I think that maybe that is more rewarding, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, if it was re- repeatable, it would be awesome. And I, and I tell you because there's like a chasing the dragon sort of thing that happens when you do any, yeah. any drug or you have any experience. Like the first time you had sex, chasing that dragon for the rest of your life. The first time you, the first time you had any drug experience. You know, you, you want to repeat that experience, and you never quite can. And I've noticed that about psychedelic experience. Yeah. They've never been the same. And I've tried, wanted deeply to, re- to have a, re- a repeat of a particular experience that I've never quite been able to duplicate. Um, I don't know why I was talking about chasing the dragon, but, uh, but it's definitely the case. Well, you, we were talking about, um, earn, you know, Oh, Getting making it repeatable. Something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if I so if I could have worked in a different way, like studied yoga instead of read all these books, and as a consequence of focusing my efforts that way, be able to, whenever I want, enter a mystical state of mind, I would say 100% that's better than having one through chemical means and then ch- chasing that experience and never being able to replicate it. I would say yes. If you could, if you could have that through a practice that was repeatable and reliable, that would be way better. Yeah. Um, well, what if it's not exactly the same? You know, it's not like a, you know, a DMT trip is pretty intense. You know. Yeah. Um, but imagine you can do you you can 
engage in some practice and you do get the mystical experience, but it's not like the the DMT experience. Mm-hmm. But it's like a constant thing. Oh my god. Yeah, um I see where you're going with this and I like this. Because this is how I've come this is how I'm coming to understand Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. Um, is that you know, we were talking like, I think it was, I, I, you know, we've been, like, recording episodes and releasing them later because you've got some stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. So I'm, like, really not sure where this is in the list of episodes. But you were talking about how Christianity, you were comparing Christianity and, like, paganism and saying that paganism on some level feels alive, mm-hmm. you know, and Christianity seems dead. Mm-hmm. Um from the research that I've been doing in Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Christianity is like the exception to that. They're very much the like the mystic element of Christianity where it's all very much still alive. And that when you reach a certain point in your faith, that that's what it's like. It's that it's... Um, like that slow drip of mystical experience just all the time. Yes, you say slow drip of mystical mystical experience and when you first brought this topic up, I, I the analogy that popped in my head was microdosing. Yeah. 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 So, there's a couple things that lead me to believe there's some truth in what you're saying and it, maybe it's an area that will be it will be important for me, you know, uh to, to explore. I had this thought when I going back to chasing the dragon, that the substances wouldn't allow me back. Mm. It wasn't that I, it wasn't that I couldn't replicate the experiences that I was being disallowed it. And that sounds weird, but that's how it felt to me, because I had this nagging feeling that what I the magic that I saw in the experience is in the world, and I have to be able to see it in the world. So what, when the drug was telling me, no, you can't have this experience anymore, I had this feeling that what it was telling me was, go and have it. Mm. Make the world the, your, your, the God that you think it is. Um, experience the magic in, in your interactions, in your experience, because experience is the sacred thing. And I know that. Experience is the sacred thing. It's not about a sacred object. It's not about a being experience is the sacred thing. There is no other sacred thing. I believe that down deep. So there's something pushing me to see the world of, uh, uh, that's revealed in psychedelics in the world of my waking life. Mm-hmm. And I notice it in my desire to get up and walk around rather than laying down and having this internal experience. It's like I, I, my body is telling me, get up and go see the magic, you know? So I, I feel some sympathy with what you're saying. Um, I also want to tell you that I have this strange thought from time to time when I'm out and about, like I go grocery shopping or something, and I see the trees. I, I love trees. They, they pull my attention a lot of times. I look at the trees, and I, I try to see beyond the image, I just take seconds where I try to see the the ones and zeros. I'm like, I know it's there. Let me let me see. Let me try to see through the veil. And I have these moments where I do that. It's like I'm, and I I kind of feel like I'm, like I want to. You know how we were talking about the connection between religious experience and insanity? Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like I'm asking myself to be crazy for a moment. I don't know how to exp- I don't know how to explain it. I want I know it's there. And I want to experience it in my waking life. 
And I think that's connected to what you're searching for, and that's very strange. You know? What do you think of that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think... Um, so, obviously, if you go back to, you know, the beginning of this podcast, my tone on psychedelics has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like I just said, I'm not anti-psychedelics. I, I would not tell people that I don't think that you should do them. I would tell them that you should know that you want to do them and that, you know, you should just be aware of what it is, you know. Um, Don't do them willy-nilly. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, But I do think, like I said earlier, I, I, I don't want to have to be reliant on the psychedelic substances uh, for the not even the that experience, but that knowledge that comes from the experience. I don't want to have to be reliant on those substances for that knowledge, for the uh, the outlook that comes from the uh, the psychedelic experience, the mystical experience. Um, I also don't, um, and I don't know. I, I I've never reached a mystical experience through anything but psychedelics, really. Um, although I have come kind of close through like breathing exercises and stuff like that. And I feel like if I kept doing that, I probably could have. Um, but I think like, I just think that you can get to that other ways. And I feel like that is probably more beneficial for you. Mm. Um, you know, beware unearned wisdom. As I said earlier, you just like the, the only thing that I want to, add to that because I think you're probably there's probably some uh, some truth in what you're saying some deep deep truth in what you're saying I think there's something about order mm-hmm. and having control that is attached to what you just said that is it's not contrary to a spiritual experience but it's but it's necessary to I don't know how to say this without sounding weird. We're already there, man. <laughs> part of an experience of God, part of a mystic experience, is being unpredictable, being chaos, mm-hmm. being the creative force of reality. Yeah, That is not ordered. It's not predictable. It's not something that, that responds to your commands. It's not at your disposal. It is. It runs through you and the cosmos and doesn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? To say that you can take a, a pill and lose your ego and die in a certain way and become the chaos is not a controlled strip. It's not, I don't think that you can have that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know that you can have that as a microdose, as a li- lived experience, you know? I say microdose is an analogy, but you know what I mean. Um, because you have to let go. You have to let go. It's something like the the East gets it. The, you know, like the Buddhists and the Taoists that that say uh, it's about inaction. It's about not being, not doing. It's about going with the flow. It's about being the way. It's not. It's not about. It's not something you can control. You are the chaos. You have to flow with the chaos. And that's something that the psychedelic experience tells you. It's like, if you fight it, you realize very quickly how, how little you are. Yeah. And it's beneficial to have that experience, like standing at the foot of a mountain or something. Yeah. I, I definitely see what you're saying, but I also see like the other side of the coin in that 
I don't think that like reaching that through like a daily religious, like not daily makes it seem like you're doing it like once a day. No, I mean constantly, yeah. a constant religious practice. I don't, I think that there's an aspect of letting go in that too. It's that I'm going to let go of everything that I was doing and I'm going to start doing things this way. And you still don't have control over it. You know, you say, I'm going to start behaving in this manner and maybe I'll get there. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I also think that taking the psychedelics, like, yes, you have to let go in the trip, but you're also like completely in control of when you do it. Um, the set it set and setting of when you're doing it. Yeah. Um, so you, you have control in that and, 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 you know, that manner of speaking with the, the psychedelic experience. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is an interesting conversation. Um, so if you were trying to live your life like a ritual, if you were trying to let every moment of your life be some effort towards something great, you know, whatever that means, I don't know. Mm. You want to live in a spiritual way, whatever the fuck that means. What would you do? What would you do to make your life like that? Um, it's a good question. I mean... So, like, there's a kind of a biblical answer to that question? Yeah. You know, like, WWJD kind of answer to that question? It's like, turn the other cheek and, you know, live, live, live Christ-like. There's, like, a religious answer to that question. But for me, it's been what I was trying to explain to you. It's been trying to see the world trying to convince myself when I'm out there that when I look at nature, I'm seeing God. When I look at people, I'm seeing God. When I speak to people, I'm speaking to God. And when I pet a dog, I'm, I'm experiencing God. And when I eat a banana, I'm experiencing God. So I, I try to like remind myself that every experience I'm having is an experience of myself and that it's an experience of God. Mm. And I, it's like it's like a, when you're meditating and your mind is drifting and you keep pulling yourself back into the to the quiet state in your mind. It's like that. Every time I get back into ordinary consciousness, I'm like, don't forget. I pull myself back to try to. Don't forget that you know you're you're driving your car, pretending like you've you've driven this this route a thousand times. You've seen it all before. You don't need to pay attention to it. Hold on. Wait a minute. This beauty around you. It's God. Don't don't take it for granted. So. There's something like that that I'm trying to do. Um, maybe not so well, but I, but I find myself trying to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how different that is from. Yeah, I don't either. I was just gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what the difference is. The uh, at least that the person who is living in like a religious, you know, like an orthodox. They're living orthodoxy, you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe they are doing that. And, and, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe through, like, a different lens or something. Um, but, yeah, maybe they are. And, I mean, does your doing that encourage you to start living in different ways, to, like, making different decisions? It definitely makes me um, want to be kinder and more... Um, empathetic, but here's the here's where it gets tricky. Let's say I'm uh, like I'm at the grocery store, and somebody walks up. Like I shop at Aldi, you know, 
and uh, the, the lines at all you can get out of control really quickly, but they're really quick on the register. And this little old lady, she comes up, she's got like a bottle of shampoo, and I got a cart full of like, you know, food for this, a whole house full of people. I'm like, you know, why don't you step ahead of me? Do a kindness to this to this person. And it's like, look, you did a good thing for God, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel good about that. But then somebody cuts me off in traffic. Like, fuck you! <laughs> but that's God too. Yeah. So one of the things that makes you realize is that it makes you struggle with this idea that what God is is not what you think it is. It's never what you think it is. Especially if you're one of those naive people that thinks God is all good. Not the case. All you have to do is get somebody somebody swerve over in front of you in traffic. You realize that in, there's inconsiderate people. There's worse than that. You know. There's you know malevolent people. People like my ex that wished me you know, harm, spiritual and physical in every way possible and would have been thrilled had that happened to me. There's people like that out there and they're God too, you know? So it makes me, I don't know what it makes me, man. It it just continually brings me to this idea of a paradox. And all I can do is point to that and say, whenever I see a paradox, there's some truth there. You know, whenever I see a paradox, it's pointing to some truth. Truth is paradox. It's the kind of weird shit you think when you do psychedelics. I don't know, man. Yeah. Um, well, I I think, you know, you having those experiences and you trying to see the world in that way, that has an effect on the actions that you take, you know. Uh, it makes you try to behave in a different manner. I wonder if there's like a, like a reverse route of that, like doing the behaviors will bring you to that way of looking at things. It's so funny you say that because we started this conversation talking about ritual and what that is is acting something out and then figuring out what the meaning is behind what you're acting out. Yeah, it's kind of like faith. It's kind of like fake it till you make it. People say that, you know, but it's kind of like faith. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's one of the things I encountered reading one of these books. I think maybe it was Neumann who he, he said that People think that you have a myth, and then you reenact the myth with a ritual. So you have the story, and then you go and you recreate the, the story in a, in a ritual. Mm-hmm. That's how religious practice works. But no, that's not how it works. You have the action, and then you understand the action through the ritual. So it, it works the opposite way. It's action first, story after. It's post hoc rationalization. Like we do with so many things, we never even fucking notice you know, we rationalize things after the fact and think that's what I was thinking all along. No, man. But action, action does come first. Then your psyche changes mm-hmm. action and then your psyche follows. Yeah. True. But do you think that if you, this like, there's always a double edged sword. Like if you follow the law, like I think of like these really Orthodox Jewish people that I feel like they lost all of the meaning of the religion because they got so focused on the rules Mm-hmm. It's like the religion is the rules and following the rules, and the people who follow the rules best are the best, you know, the best, the most faithful, and and all that. It's like, no, man, you know, if you decided I wanted to live a certain way, and that means I'm going to follow these rules of behavior. If you you make the mistake of thinking that the rules are uh, the significant thing, and that's not the, that's not that's not the case, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about the rules. What do you think? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that... I don't know. I just don't know enough about Judaism to re- to really say, you know. Um, yeah. I, d- I really don't know very much about Judaism at all, you know. I mean, I, you know, I know, like, the connections to Christianity, but I just don't know, like, what the point is for them, you know. Like, um, you know, like, I, I guess in the simplest in the simplest terms, Christians are striving for heaven, you know. Um, and I, I mean... Christians are striving for heaven and Jews are striving for perfection. Yeah. And perfection is impossible. And that's, that's to me, that's been like my, my understanding of the divergence between Christianity and Judaism. Because this is just the way I think about it. You, you tell me what you think. Where, where uh, Judaism says um, that you shouldn't covet your, na- your neighbor's wife. And Jesus says... You know, you don't have to sleep with her to be guilty of the sin. You just have to think that you want her, and yeah. you, and you're just as guilty as as somebody who slept with her. And so Jesus took it a step further and said, even if you think it, you're guilty of that sin. And what it made me what it made me realize is that it's not about being disciplined in spirit and saying I'm tempted, but I'm not going to act on it. That's what a Jew would say is the right thing to do. Jesus says, no, the fact that you're tempted means you're guilty. Mm. And that means nobody's innocent because you can't control it. You have a lustful thought as a teenager. You think you have any control over that? You're fucking crazy. You have zero control over that. So how can you be guilty of a mortal sin because, you, you, you know, blood flowed to the tip of your penis and you had an unnatural thought about your, you know, your, your whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you, you know, Jesus, Jesus is saying, look, you can't be perfect like the law, like the, like the Torah tells you um, you should be. You can't be what God says you must be. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole purpose of, of the salvation offered by the Christian religion. It's you. You can't become perfect, so you have to be born again. Yeah. To go back to um, a, a recent episode, I also think it's worth mentioning that, you know, at least in the books, uh, that the Jews rejected perfection. You know. You've been reading that Jewish revolutionary spirit, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Jews rejected perfection. That's interesting. Because like Jordan Peterson talks about the hero, and Jesus is like our cultural hero. But yeah. you know, before that, it was Hercules or whatever. But you know, we always have a cultural hero, and that's somebody that we look up to to imitate, and that's that's who represents the highest moral virtues. Who we look to and say, that's a guide for my behavior. And the Jews said, we don't want it. Yeah, we don't want that guide for our behavior. What does that mean? I don't know, man. Uh, I think that uh, on some level, it's. You know, it's not it, like let's say you've got a uh, well. I guess in your circumstances, it would be you know you you were always the good boy. You know, you were the kid who was not getting in as much trouble yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. But if you got this sibling who's always the good boy, um, it doesn't feel good to like compare yourself to that. You know? Yeah. Well, that's so. in, that's interesting because that's well. I mean, your brother was like a you know, yeah, mama's boy like I was, and yeah, for and sure. You didn't you didn't compare well to him with your. Uh, I with was your, always always getting in trouble. Your getting rebel terrible, nature, terrible grades. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that reminds me of like uh you know, Cain and Abel. You know. Yeah. Um, Luckily, I didn't kill my brother. It's interesting. So I'm sure my brother 
thought about killing you. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that it was frustrating for him to have a, a brother that was always getting straight well, A's and never getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but he was a lot older than me. You know, you guys are closer in age. Yeah, true. Um, but I mean, that the brother comparison is less what I was talking about than just that. Like maybe you would reject something that you would compare yourself against that makes you realize that you're fucking up. You know? Oh yeah, exactly. So you're like, no. I I reject you. Get right. out of here. Yeah, and that's it. That's that. That's exactly it, man. You have you have Jesus, the perfect man, who recognizes that you can't. That it's impossible to be the perfect man. You know, it's impossible for you to be the perfect man. And it's a paradox. And like I said, anytime you see a paradox, then I know there's some truth, some something deeply true about that. Yeah, the perfect the perfect man, Jesus, who tells you that if you've thought about if you lusted after someone in your in your mind you're just as guilty you cannot be perfect the perfect man tells you you cannot be perfect and he's the he's the idol that we're I, I probably not shouldn't use the word idol when the guy does but he's but he's that thing at the top of the hierarchy that we're looking to that we're imitating the paragon of moral virtue yeah um so there was a word in one of the past weeks where in orthodox christianity that is like once you uh, ascend to a certain point in your faith that you become like one with, I I, I don't think that they say one with God, like yeah. you are not God. I think that they would think that that is not good, mm-hmm. not right. Yep. Um, but there is some kind of like joining Yeah. and it's called theosis is the word that I was mm. looking for. I, I've heard Catholics say that you become part of the body of the church and they call yeah. that the bridegroom of Christ. So you become part of the body of the church and that's like the I want to say that's like the goddess that pairs off with with God. Yeah. You know, the church is the bride of of God and you become a part of it. Is yeah. that is that the idea? So, yeah, something like that. I mean, I've definitely heard in you know the looking into orthodoxy that I've been doing that the, the church is Christ, mm, right? You know, uh, yeah. which is interesting. I mean, it is interesting. This is something that I have been thinking about lately, and I'm I'm not deep into it. Maybe maybe we can pull the cork out and 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 f- figure this out. But I brought this up one time: is the idea of um, Canatus that uh, Spinoza talked about, um, and we talked about it about the collective, about mm. the will of God or the will of the people versus an individual, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing that comes up when I think about the church. If I become one with the body of the church, which means all the other believers, then I'm suspicious because my because my thoughts, my ideas, and my will are now part of a greater being, and who's got its own will, the church, and I don't quite have a say over that. I don't have any control over that. I'm part of it, but I'm not in control of it, and I'm suspicious of that, man. What do you think? I am less suspicious of it than I ever have been. Like, this... Uh you know, I come from, and if you if you are one of the few people who's probably been listening since early in this podcast, you know that I come from a more like libertarian um, mindset, and the, a big part of that is individualism. You know, uh, and I'm at a point now where I think that the whole like radical individualism that liberalism is based on is not good. Um, you know, I still think that individualism has its benefits, 
But I also think that individualism leads to, and this is interesting because, you know, like you have the, the we are all God thing. And I think that this radical individualism makes people think that they are God. So that's the difference between solipsism and idealism. And I'll just really briefly, idealism is, I think, what I'm, what I'm most properly, if I had to identify my beliefs, idealism believes that everything is mind. Mm-hmm. Solipsism is everything is my mind. Yeah. Right? So the difference between them couldn't be more different. I'm okay with the collective identity in terms of us all being God, but I'm not okay with the diminishment of the importance of the individual because, um, well, I, I can see the the con side of that um, extreme, which is the solipsism, which is somebody who thinks, not that the world is an illusion the way I do, but that the world exists only in my head, my head, only in my head, which means you exist only in my head. And so I can do with the world and with you as I please. I have no no concerns whatsoever about, you know, uh, your individuality because you're just in my head. You belong to me in my mind. That's a very different thing than saying we're all God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I guess. I, I mean, it is different. But I don't know how different it is. I mean... I think it's the difference between God and the devil. It's, it's, it's the difference between good and evil. To, to, to imagine that, that everything is mental and that mental is mine, that is the sin. To say everything is mental and we're, we're all, we, we all constitute that equally... That's correct. Right? So it's like um, uh, there's this idea that I was talking to Daniel about uh, where uh, this, these early Christians believed that Yahweh wasn't, wasn't the real God. But Yahweh was the demiurge. It's, it's this spiritual, it's this angel that yeah. God created. Mm-hmm. And, and God asked, said, hey, how about you create the world for me? I'm going to disappear now. And he's the one that God ever wanted to believe he was God. So he creates the world. He didn't create himself, but he creates the world. No one knows that there's a God behind God. So he deceives the world. That's why the devil is often called the deceiver. He deceives the world into believing that he's God and gets all their worship and, and all that. Um, that That's solipsism. It's mine, you know? It's the I, it's the ego, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, where idealism is, the ego is... I, there's a way in which there isn't an ego. Ego is dispersed among everything, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's this arrogant view of it, that everything is me. That's that's evil. That's that's satanic. Um, and then there's, you know, the the idealism uh, angle, which is has no ego, no claim of ownership, no claim of, you know, authority. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's the distinction. Yeah. Um, um, I know we were talking originally about the body of the church, and and so I don't know if we want to like circle back to this idea, but well, I mean, I just think it's funny that you said that you have like a problem, some kind of a you know ingrained problem in you with being a part of a collective, but you seem like you're okay with it. I mean, when you're talking about the ideal, you know, you you seem like really into that. I, I am. I am. Um, trying to, which I'm, trying I'm not to... like criticizing. I think that's. Probably good. No, well, I, I guess I'm trying to distinguish my suspicions. It's like um, 
if you ever have to work on a project with people, it's, all kind, it's full, fraught with all kinds of frustrations. Because for all sorts of reasons. Where was I going with this idea? Don't know. I guess what I, what I mean to say is something like, a ze- have you ever heard this? A zebra is a horse designed by committee. Yeah, that's the that's my problem with collectivism. Mm. It's like, I it's like if you're a passenger seat driver versus behind the wheel driver, that's kind of the the core of my uh, suspicion because I'm not in control of it. Right? If I'm not driving it, and that's the case, like what's happening with society? What direction is it going? I'm not driving that car. I'm in it, but I'm not driving it. And I'm suspicious of that. It's like, wait a minute, who's driving this goddamn car? Where are we going? You know, I, you know what I mean? That's my suspicion of collectivism. But when I talk about idealism, it's God driving the car. It's like, I, I, I'm not exactly suspicious of that. I don't know what, even what that means to be suspicious of that. But when I'm talking about society or the church, then I, have not, I don't have the same like, ability to write that off. I'm, I don't know where we're going, and I don't know how we're getting there and what's moving the wheels. I know I'm somehow participating in it, but I don't know beyond that anything. And that scares me. I guess I, 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 I'm fearful of it. Because who's driving the car, man? Yeah. Is it the collective will of the people? Because the majority of the people out there, I wouldn't trust driving the car, man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that that's why it's important. Like when you take into consideration something like a church, uh, it's important that all of the people be at least close to on the same page. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that is, that's a big problem with Christianity right oh. now. Um, you know, you've got so many different branches of it and so many people who are willing to disregard parts of it and uphold other parts of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, do, do you think, this is, this is sorry, man, I have to ask you this. Do you think that religious experience is an individual experience or a collective experience? It's a good question. I think that it's probably both. Yeah. That it can be both. Like I want to, I want to say no to that. But then I, then I remember being in a in a concert and mm-hmm. losing myself, and I'm like, that is a religious experience. When you lose yourself for a second in the energy of a concert, and you are the music for a second, and you're not in your behind your eyes anymore you're part of you're the experience for a second you know what i'm talking about has that mm-hmm. happened to you when you like even when you're reading a book and for a second you're gone you're in the book when you lose yourself that's an ego death it's not the same caliber as a psychedelic ego death but it is an ego death mm-hmm. and that's collective you have that experience just like you would in an ecstatic ritual if you're in an Af- sub-Saharan tribe in Africa and you're dancing around the campfire for 12 hours, you know, uh, whatever, until you're exhausted and you and you see a vision, that's what, that's what happens at a concert. You're having that type of... That's collective. I can't say that's not collective. That is. But I also think you only know God. You only know God personally. So I don't know how to reconcile those two things. What does that mean, you only know God personally? Well, you only meet God face-to-face. You don't meet God, but that's not entirely true either. Because like when I try to tell you that I go out into the world and I, for a second, try to imagine that everything is an experience of God. And when I meet, when I'm speaking to you right now, I'm speaking to God. And that's not an experience of myself. 
but it kind of is. If we're all God, then it is an experience of myself. All experience is self-experience. Yeah. It's how the inside is like the outside. It's, it's as above, so below. You know, that's an old uh, medieval um, alchemical dictum. As above, so below. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what God is like, the cosmos is like. It's a, it's a, it's a description of fractal, uh, fractal nature of reality. Turtles all the way down. As above, so below. And if I have an in, internal experience of God, God the God within, or I have an experience of my buddy Kyle, the God without, it's the same experience. Both, in, both personal and collective. Okay. And that, to me, is a paradox. Also, the most true thing I've said today. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I guess I just don't really understand what the confusion is. Like, I mean... Um, where, where are my suspicions coming from? Or when yeah, you say yeah, confusion? exactly. I don't know either. I think maybe it is goes back to this idea of when you have a psychedelic experience and you don't let go, you have a bad trip. It's mm. like you need to be able to let go and that's something about having an ego that doesn't want you to let go. And when I say I don't trust a collective experience because I'm not in control, that's what comes to my mind. Well, maybe you need to let go. The thing is, if I let go and if I let go and do nothing and the Holocaust happens again, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I did nothing. How can I how can I justify that? Yeah, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people stood by and did nothing and something terrible happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I don't re- I really don't know what to say about that. I mean, I think I I just think that like things like that are almost like I don't know. It's like it seems beyond anybody's control. You know, it just seems like. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was within somebody's control, but I don't. I don't know. It seems like. I don't know when you get to things at that level. It just seems like. Um, what are you gonna do? You know. Yeah, I completely understand. It's, it's it becomes overwhelming, but I don't know if that means we don't have a responsibility to do something. You know. And that's like. Well, it's like a heroic act because you have to stand up against everybody. You have to you have to go against the tide, you know, against the flow. Nobody likes doing that. But like I said, even the psychedelic experience tells you not to do that, you know? I just don't know if you can if it's fair to extend that to everything. That's one thing about psychedelic experience is probably worth saying is that you're so flooded with the importance and significance of the meaning of those experiences. It it seems all-encompassing. In the experience, and it makes it easy for you to extend that to th- other things when you when you come back out of the experience that you might that maybe you shouldn't, you know. It's like if I say the psychedelic experience told me that if I that if I resist reality that I will have a bad time, so I need to be more flexible. Well, you might think that's good, but if I do it, if I apply that to everything, then I don't stand up against against Hitler, you know, in the, in the, in the second world war. So, you know, um, there's always tension. There's always, there's two sides of everything and they're both always true, you know? And that's the paradox that I keep bringing up. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) yeah, I'm just thrown by the, the Holocaust thing. Sorry, man. I just, you know, being, uh, uh, what's the word? 
Jewish. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, tell me about those books. Have you read, read any more of them? Uh... Yeah, I've read a little bit more of them, but like I said, they're dense books. Oh, yeah. It's a, yeah. Lot of, a lot of info in there. I think it's uh, like when I've been doing the solo episodes, a lot of times I'll be reading something, but I'll have to read it over and over and over because I'm like reading it, and then I'm like figuring out what's important, and then I'm transcribing those notes, and then I'm reordering them so as the, as I'm going through this I'm like reading it over and over and over and over so I'm like really studying it yeah. so I can put together what I need to do these episodes and it's f- it's strange how much effort it takes for these ideas to actually sink in and when they do sink in how surprised I am like sometimes I'll go back and listen to an, a solo episode and I'm like oh shit like I learned something for myself Okay. like I didn't pick up on it until I listened back you know yeah. in a weird way how are you feeling about listening to your own episodes at this point? Um, I haven't, I haven't been doing it like as religiously as I was before. Okay. Um, but uh, I still have a lot of improvement to do, so I, I still need to, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's not painful anymore. Um, there's a lot less that I do that I dislike. Uh, but I like the, what I've noticed most is that I need to um, pare it down. Like I, I find so much shit in there interesting. That when I go to like tell the story, it doesn't f- flow exactly. It's like a whole bunch of random, uh, interesting quotes that don't fit into the narrative. So I end up dele- uh, deleting more and more. Um, so like an, an episode that used to be two hours, um, maybe it's getting closer to like an hour and a half. Right. You know what I mean? So I think that's better. But yeah, to each their own, you know? Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. Oh, so um, I told you Josh Hamilton started his podcast, Faith, Fringe, and Freedom. I think he's got two episodes at least uh, published already. The first one he did, uh, he drove up here, uh, whatever, like three hours up here, and stayed till like 9 o'clock and drove home and then recorded the episode And uh, before he went to bed. He was he was like probably thinking about it the whole drive home and wanted to like get that get on it wax. Out. Yeah, yeah. As the rappers say. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, happens with him. Yeah. Also, Daniel Tortoradin wants to come back on the Two Tongues podcast, so we'll have to have that guy uh, back on again pretty soon. Always welcome. Love that guy. Also, I heard from Eddie again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said he listened back to it. He thought it went better than it than it than uh, than he thought. Yeah. Especially the Roe versus Wade conversation, although he, he wanted to get into it more. And yeah. I, I told him when I listened back, I thought it, we should have done a longer episode. Yeah. It, yeah. We, and I did way too we much talking. We got short. Yeah. Not, yeah. But we got cut. We definitely got cut short due to the technical difficulties and his, you know, he had like a hard out time. Yeah. So I think Eddie would like participating in a conversation like this better than being interviewed. You know what I mean? Mm. So like he can chime in, but isn't like on the spot. Yeah. You know, got to get him to come up here. It'd be good to have him in person. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah. We should definitely do that. Eddie, come up. Eddie, come on up, man. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, What else, man? Um, I really don't. I don't. I don't have much else to talk about. I did see an, one interesting thing that's just like completely unrelated to anything. Yep. But um, you know the movie The Matrix. Yeah. You know what year that came out? I want to say ninety nine. Ninety nine. Yeah. So there's this scene where Agent Smith is. Uh, he's like, what's the word I'm looking for? I think he's inter. It's the scene where he's interrogating Neo. Yeah. Before Neo's Neo. Okay. Uh, and they show Neo's passport. There's a date on the passport. Oh, I didn't notice. 
Do you know what that date is? No. September 11th, 2001. Really? Yeah. Isn't that fucking weird, man? That is weird. Is that a, that's a coincidence? It, it would have to be. I guess. I don't know, man. It's fucking weird. That is weird. September 11th, 2001. It's like the... That is weird, but it's like um, like the Nostradamus um, piece on uh, that they connected to the 9-11. Um, I can't remember the details anymore, but you know how the, cryptic the language is. But even just retro, in, in retrospect, it's pretty pretty crazy. Like half 9-11 happened, crazy. you're like, man, yeah. what, he, what, what did he know, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it could be, could be coincidence, I guess. Do you, uh, what do you think... Prophecy is possible. Uh yeah, I, I think that um, the limits on what I think is possible is like a way more extended than it was a few years ago. You know. Um, plus, I mean, I just you know like conspiracy. You know, it's interesting watching the the political and uh, spiritual changes in you, man. Um, because I think that uh, you know, we, well, we have we share a lot of the same experiences and a lot of the same history, and we're. Uh, uh, we're on a similar path, you know, uh, but we're not taking the same road there. And it's interesting, but we have got very different personalities, but it's just interesting to see because so much of the shit you say like resonates with me. Um, but, uh, you know, we just took different roads, you know, true that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, we definitely did take different roads, but like similar roads too, you know, like uh, maybe it's like our roads diverge sometimes, but then they come back together, yeah, you know? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were definitely on the same psychedelic road there for a long time. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I feel like they're still adjacent roads, you know? Yeah, they, absolutely. I was always trailing behind you a little bit in that regard, but... Uh, uh, until DMT, I yeah, should yeah. say. You, you definitely hit the uh, the fast lane on that one. I have a suspicion that mm, I don't know that you have had an ego death. What do you think? Um, I, I mean, I I, I struggle with like the the ego death thing in general. Like yeah. I some sometimes I think that it's. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? That nobody really has an ego death? Uh, that you just think you have an ego death? I think that sometimes too. Yeah. But the type of experience I mean, like, in the DMT, like, if you remember your first one, mm-hmm. I imagine, I can only imagine, that there was a time during that experience when you weren't really there. Mm-hmm. But that, you were having an experience, but you weren't really there as yourself. And... That's not exactly what I mean. And so maybe I'm using the wrong word. What I mean is this feeling of unity, this one with the universe feeling. I've definitely had that. You did? Yeah. Okay. So I learned something interesting about that when I, on that documentary. They were talking about MDMA. And that happens to be, that happens to be what, I, what I had the most profound experience with. So uh, I was interested. This guy says... When you do MDMA, you have, I think it's serotonin, maybe dopamine, but I think it's serotonin, that gets dumped, it gets dumped in your brain. And uh, people think that that is um, what drives the experience. And it, it's a part of it, for sure. It's part of uh, the euphoria that you feel. So when people do ecstasy and they go to the club and they feel fucking great, that's part of that. Yeah. But it's not the one with the universe part. 
that's connected to, um, now I lost the name of the chemical. Uh, it, it's something that w- women release. Um, oxytocin? Oxytocin. So the oxytocin is a bonding chemical. Mm-hmm. It's something that allows mom and, and child to bond so that when the child's chomping on your nipple or keeping you up all, all hours of the night, you don't strangle the thing to death because you feel bonded with them in this powerful way. Your mind gets flooded with oxytocin when you do MDMA. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man and you've never had a child breastfeeding you know, on you, you probably don't have any idea what large amounts of oxytocin feels like. Well, it bonds you to your child. And another thing it does seemingly is it bonds you to everything in, in the world. Mm-hmm. You have this feeling of, of merging your, you know, with the cosmos. So I thought that was interesting. The same sort of feeling that bonds a mother and child is what drives seemingly, what drives that unity feeling in, in at least in an MDA, MDMA experience. What do you think of that? It's interesting. Mother Earth, baby. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. I think, um, you say you have had that feeling. I've definitely had the, the feeling of, you know, everything is one, um, you know, being like the separation of myself from the universe is gone, you know, uh, like I'm not some thing floating around in the universe like i am like a particle well that's not even the right way but like i am in the i am a part of the universe yes and that does did that experience have any profound way on how you um, understand god um yeah for sure okay well as long as that's true and then you can think anything you want to think beyond that religiously i think i'm okay with it yeah yeah um, well, that's good. <laughs> I think that w- one with the universe experience is what people point to mm-hmm. when they say God. It's what po- what people point to when they practice religion. It's what people are recreating when they do a ritual. Yeah. In every case, in every culture, in the history of mankind. I think it's all pointing back to a mystical experience. I'm not saying they're all psychedelic, but I'm saying every religion, period, for a long time, well, you know, for a few years anyways, uh, after those experiences happened, I was definitely, like, right on the same page as you. Um, but anymore, I don't... I definitely still think there's a level of truth to that, but I think that there might be more that I don't understand about it. Yes. Um, and that... We, this is something we talked about in a previous episode you know, in the last two weeks or so about the separation. Um, and you are kind of on the page that it's the separation between us and God, you know, is pretty much all perception, you know? Um, and I'm not 100% sure that that's true. I think that there might be another level of separation there. Um, describe that. What do, you, what do you think that might it's be? It's hard for me to describe it. I don't really know. Because I'm not sure what you mean by the separation is limited to perception. I I think that it might be more correct to say that perception is the separation. It's sure. it's like uh, I don't think that I don't think that the separation is real. I don't think it's like we've broken off from God. It's not broken off. It's folded back on God. It's something like that, where God folded back up on itself. Imagine a a, a wave. 
mm. crashing back onto itself, mm. crashing back onto the water. The top of that wave comes off of the ocean. The ocean is God. I'm the wave, right? That interaction, when it falls back on uh, the ocean, surface of the ocean, that's experience, you know? Um, self-experience, self-consciousness, consciousness experiencing itself. And the thing that's difficult, that image is not difficult to imagine. What's difficult to imagine is that the experience causes physical reality. And that's what I believe. Mm -hmm. The experience of consciousness experiencing itself is, that experience is physical reality. It's completely strange and weird, but that's, that's, that's what I believe. And it's... Uh, it's strange. It's like, it's not that I don't think matter is real. It's not that I think that this is an illusion and that, you know, it's not, it's not exactly true. It's that I think that the physical exists in consciousness. You know? It doesn't have existence by itself. Yeah. It has existence within this greater reality. See, that's where I'm... I'm... More or less on the same page with you with, with that. Um, I just think that there could be some level of separation between... That there could be some sort of Godhead, you know what I mean? That we are not... Maybe we're a part of, but there is some kind of separation. Um, I believe there's a Godhead. Yeah, I just don't know um, where that point is. You know I don't know I mean? either. Yeah. Part of me thinks... Part of me thinks that if you take all of the experience that's happening now and that's ever happened and then ever will happen, if you take all of that stuff at once, then that's God or that's the experience of God or something like that. And maybe that's true, but that doesn't tell you what God is, you know? Um, so I don't really know where, you know, I don't know that saying that all that all experience taken as a whole is what God is. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that that's quite quite right. Um, I, I do think there's more to God than I understand by a long shot. Um, I do think there's more to God than, than the psychedelic experience reveals to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's even possible that the psychedelic experience is something like a false God. It's something like, like a glimpse of the reality of God that you take to be the whole thing. Yeah. And I don't think that, I think that's a, probably pretty likely. It's a demiurge. Yeah, but it's still closer to the root of mind than the world that I see around me now. Maybe that's, maybe it's, maybe in reality, those images are the same. The, the crazy stuff you see in a, in a psychedelic experience and the world around, the world, the, the, the world around you and your waking state of mind are exactly the same, you know? And there's a paradox there. And so, there's something true, man. there's something deeply true about that. Lots of paradoxes this week. How do you how do you feel about that? The idea that I'm saying anytime you bump into a paradox like that, that I that I take special note that there's something not that I understand what it is, but there's something there that's deeply Important. true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that that's there's probably something to that. See, I experienced that in mystic experience. Yeah, I experienced this. I don't know how to describe it, but it, it's like um, a shuddering. Is a shuddering of my consciousness. It, it almost feels like you're flipping a flip book, right? And you're seeing the you're seeing the shape move, you know, whatever, a little uh, stick figure move across the across the page. It's like that's how our experience is, but it's happening so fast that we can't see 
the distinction in the pages. It's flipping so fast. It's like a movie we're watching. We can't tell that we're looking at still images, you know, one after the next after the next. But when I was on, when I, when I had this mystic experience, there was a time in, in which I noticed the blankness in between. Mm. It was like my experience was shuddering on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. And it was happening so fast that I usually don't notice it. But in that, in that experience, I noticed it. And it was a, it was like an experience of paradox. I am and I'm not. I am and I'm not. Because the world was in front of me and then it was gone. It was in front of me and it was gone. And something about that felt like that's how the whole world is. That's how the whole, that's how all of reality is. It's a start and a stop between being and non-being. It's like a back and forth between consciousness and unconsciousness. And we don't normally notice it. That's the kind of weird shit, man, that goes through your mind when you're trying to make sense of an experience like that. Yeah. What do you think, man? I think you've done too many drugs. (laughs) No, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think about that. Because it's like uh, we were talking earlier about two people can do psychedelics and you could have literally the same exact experience uh, and you're going to interpret it completely different mm. ways. But I mean, in reality, and this is something that I learned one of the first times I took mushrooms with Matt is that you're not going to have the same experience. You know, it's going to be wildly different and I've never really had that experience. So it's, it's hard, you know, you never had what experience that experience oh, of the, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it, there's something I say all the time on my solo episodes where I, where I it's one of these fascinations where I try to I'm trying to understand what God is. I always have. That's just like the most fascinating idea in my mind. Where did it all come from? So I'm trying to understand what God is, and uh, and Jordan Peterson brings up this mythological motif of the Ouroboros, and that's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about paradox and this shuddering of experience and this union of opposites unconscious and conscious black you know it's like blackness and then reality then blackness and then reality i'm experiencing simultaneously opposites being and non-being and this is what our most ancient myths tell us god is god is the union of opposites the great god apsu and tiamat the salt water and the fresh water opposites united the, the female and the male the great god and the great goddess they're one thing in the beginning and because they're one thing they're they're in a creative union. They're in a sexual act. The, the, the waters are mixing, right? The, the female and the male are mixing. And they're birthing all these new gods within them. Mm. And then there's a separation. Then, you know, the, the, the divine son the, that's born between the two gods separates the heavens from the earth. And that's what we read in the Bible. The heavens and the earth were separated. Woman was separated from man, taken from his, from his rib. Everything is separated into being. And that paradox, that cognitive dissonance, is what Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung and you know all humanity from all of time are trying to describe when they say God is something like this, like the yin and the yang, the union of opposites. Whatever that paradox is, that is the, that is the core, that is the egg from which all of being emerges. And that all sounds like the craziest shit you've ever heard. But what I'm telling you is when I had that shuddering experience, I experienced that paradox. I was that paradox. I both was and was not simultaneously. I was the thing that the myth describes God is. And I can't, undo, I can't erase that experience. So that's why I have such confidence about certain things that I say and, and believe. Uh, that's why I sound like I 
like I'm sure sometimes when I say crazy shit. Yeah. I don't know what else to what else to say, man, about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say either. I what, mean. what what does it make you think when somebody says something like taking things that are polar opposites and joining them together creates ultimate meaning? Like if I took a negative five and a positive five and I put them together, I have nothing. If I take a an atom with a po- or electron with a positive uh, whatever a po- positive charge and a negative charge and I put them together, I've got nothing. What I'm telling you is, if you take opposites and you put them together, you have everything. You have everything. There is no such thing as nothing. And I'm sure about that because I experienced it. And how do you communicate that to somebody? How do you make that make any sense to somebody? Does that make any sense to you that the union of opposites could be something like potential, something like the stem cell of the universe can become anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean... You know, I, I can't say that it makes like, like scientific logical sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, but no, I mean in a like intuitive in, kind of a way. Yeah, yeah, and just like, um, just like thinking in the way that you think in images. You mm, know, like yeah. I can see, like I can just like see that somehow. You know. Yeah. But and I have no idea what the fuck it means. Me either. <clears throat> I'll be interested to see what. Like insights, like what when you go to this uh, Orthodox church, what is oh, captivating to you? What is interesting to you? What makes you curious? What do you want to learn more about? Mm-hmm. I, I just want to I want to notice what appeals to you and what and what doesn't about the experience. So I found one that I think I'm going to go to. It's actually in the city that you used to live in. Okay, um, and it is not an ethnic Orthodox church. It's uh, like whoever, you you know, it's not Ukrainian or Russian. or. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And they do services in English? English, okay. yeah. Um, which, I mean, I definitely like the idea of going to a Russian service or any, you know, yeah. kind of foreign language service. Um, but I also, like, want to understand, you know, so mm. I'm not going to, I don't speak Russian. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So maybe you do this one and then you go to a. Yeah, a, I think yeah. eventually I'll go to a, a Russian. And you're doing it next week? Yeah. Okay, good. So by the time we're back from our hiatus, well, that's what we'll be talking about. Yeah. And we'll be, and the audience won't notice a hiatus because we have some episodes to publish, but yeah. uh, but we'll take two weeks off. I also have uh, an Orthodox study Bible coming. Ooh. Yeah, so we'll see. Well, we, it is two hours and I have to pee, so uh, this was an interesting talk, man. We did ritual. We did magic. We did God. Take note of all this for when you're trying to formulate the episode here in a minute. <laughs> all right, guys. Peace. Peace. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.